Hi, this is Christy of Brown Girls Booking. As a reminder, we upload every other Wednesday or every other week or bi weekly. We want to thank you for listening, and if you love the show, please follow our social media. We can be found at Brown Girls Booking on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a Patreon, and your support helps us with our production costs, which we appreciate. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Didi. And I'm Christy, and we have Brown Girls Booking. And this is a show from two readers looking for known and unknown narratives in familiar and unfamiliar spaces. We are two girls reading literary fiction widely. If there's a topic or theme that's been written about, then it's a topic or theme we want to talk about. And today, we will be discussing Edith Warthin's The Age of Innocence. If you recall, Didi and I are going through the book's through the decades, and we started with the 1920s. And last week, our 1920s book was The Black of the Berry. So this week, we have stayed in New York, changed class, and our book kicks off following protagonist Newland Archer. What did you think? All right. This was, you know, that's what I like about classic. It can be as old as you want it to be, but It's the same stuff we go through today. Like, this is a story about appearances and what things look like and how important it is to appear to be doing the right things, even if you're doing all the wrong things. It's just as long as nobody knows about it. Yes. And that's exactly what goes on today. And nothing has changed, especially when you get into a tight-knit community. You get this sort of code and then it can go far how that code affects each person. I'm really happy that that's how you referred to it as a community, because one of the things that I really appreciated about this book was the way it looks at this community and utilizes it to illustrate how communities in and of themselves think that they are the center of their communal universe. It it really illustrates tribalism. Form and tradition is really purported in this book. And the thing that I that I liked about Newland Archer is that Newland Archer is kind of fanciful. He's not the typical run of the mill. Most people want the men to be into, you know, investing money and uh, banking and things that so-called have that money and clout connected to them, which he doesn't really seem to be that in love with that kind of thing. Yes. Which is another reason why I was kind of looking at the side eye, like why they really wanted made to marry him because he doesn't really fit the bill of the the person they would really like her to marry but you know okay arguably up until the night that the book starts newland archer is the quintessential man to marry yeah he is a part of the tradition a part of the form and even though his family only consists of him his mother and his sister they are a long-standing upper crust family and they are related to the most paramount family in New York. So I would say that that is why May's family wants him to marry May. But keep in mind, not only that, it is beginning of this idea of the age of innocence. Because in the beginning, we start with the innocence of May Whalen, who is fancy, free, little, young, fresh thing. I think he even mentions being attracted to 
to her freshness and her youth. And so that's when we first get this feeling of the title of the book, which is The Age of Innocence. We kind of quickly realized that this theme of innocence, I put it in air quotes, yes, going to go far and it's not just going to be May Whalen. Okay. Yes. So, so this kind of brings us to a nice point. I'm sorry for the noise in the background, listeners. I am in the Bahamas and my neighbors are doing their Bahamian things. <laughs> Only in the islands. Um, Newland Archer is making this decision to announce his wedding engagement. And as a result, inadvertently or deliberately puts himself in this space as the champion of Countess Olenska. And because he does this initial act that actually is more for May and himself than it is for Countess Olenska, I would say that May's family takes that initial act of championship on behalf of this woman and makes him a constant go-between to try and manipulate Countess Olenska into what it is that they want her to do in the name of the family yeah. and how they look in society. Which is right? to go back to Europe to her husband. Right. She yeah. has left an abusive man and now here she is shown up in New York society. And so going back to Dee Dee's discussion about the theme of innocence and who gets to be innocent and how the writer uses innocence as this means of satire, we see that the Countess Olenska comes to New York with a lot of innocence, not societally constructed Uh innocence, you know, not ignorance is what I would say May has in the guise of innocence. You see, but this is the reason why the the innocence comes in, because here she is thinking that she has a particular standing in the family that she doesn't. Right. And she, and, and I think that's, that's the thing that really hits hard because here she is fleeing a, a husband who's a count, who's, a philanderer, okay. an alcoholic, and a wife beater. Okay. Right. Yeah. And now suddenly when she needs help, her family's like, oh no, uh-uh, that's gonna look bad. You know, you shouldn't even be here anyway. You have a husband back in, you know, in France. You need to go back there and stay with your husband. So okay. here in comes Newland Archer because what the Countess Olenska really wants is a divorce. This woman would like a divorce. And so the family convinces Newland Archer to convince her not to divorce the man, not to divorce her husband. And he kind of resists at first, only to be brought around to the fact that should she not divorce her husband, should she go ahead and go on with the divorce, she will be ostracized from the family. While all this is going on, Archer and Ellen are falling for each other. They don't even realize that it's happening, that they've fallen in love and he's engaged to be married to me. Yes. And and the tragedy, in addition to the tragedy of the fact that he has finally met a woman who he is completely and totally aligned with in terms of interests and in terms of aesthetics and outlooks, is that to resist it, 
he tries to say to May, let's get married sooner. Yeah. Because he does, he doesn't want to, to be a bad citizen of yeah. his traditions. He doesn't want to be the man who falls for another woman. And May resists because May says tradition says that we should be engaged for at least a year. And then what happens? Because the Countess Olenska loves him and knows that he wants a marriage to happen quicker. She intercedes with her family and says, look, Newland wants this. And if Newland loves May and May loves Newland, why, why can't he marry her? And so then May's family acquiesces and says, sure, y'all can have a quick marriage. And suddenly it dawns on Newland that he loves the Countess. And he's like, well, I'm not married yet. Let's run away. And the Countess is like, it's been set. And this was the irony, too. This is a whole satire because it's Newland trying to do the right thing based on what society tells him. The Countess Olenska trying to do the right thing based on what society tells her and neither of them doing the right thing for each other and the love that they feel for each other. Well, not only that, they have examples around them of people doing the wrong thing. And that situates it for Newland because basically he sees these examples of men around him that are philandering like like mad and you know and then trying to pretend like they're good citizens and they're good right. friends and stuff like that and he knows that he does not want to become that no so he does not want to be a hypocrite he has that as you know as a constant reminder of what not to do but the thing that accentuates everything the most is how Wharton writes from the end of book 1 and the beginning of book 2 you see the end of book one, you have Archer and May's sort of there when he finds out that the wedding has been moved up. And then when you open to book two, it's him waiting for the carriage that's bringing May to marry him at the altar. And so it, it happens so quickly that as a reader, you feel like like Newland, like, damn, <laughs> you barely even have time to think of what's happened because it's happened literally from a turn of a page, like literally you turn the page and he's in front of the altar. And I found that it was an excellent technique to drive home the idea that he is making a mistake. So we have those transitions in the matter of 10 pages. Yeah. We get a year and a half. We get the decision to move up the marriage, the wedding, the wedding, the honeymoon, and and then a year and a half into the marriage. And suddenly he sees the countess again. And we realize that Newland in that year and a half has been living a kind of a half life Yeah, where he's been like, here's what I should be doing. So I'm doing what I should be doing. And the countess herself, a part of that, I will say, a part of Newland being able to be steadfast to that initial decision of his is the countess saying, I will not allow this to turn into some grubby little affair. Fair, exactly. We, yeah, we can be two people who are in love with each other yeah. and breathe the same air with each other, knowing that we love each other and not base ourselves into what a little sordid affair can be. And they have this example of what that looks like in this man called Mr. Beaufort, who is from Europe. He's from Britain, incredibly rich and not really 
embraced by New York society because they see him as a foreigner and they see him as new money, nouveau riche. Yeah, nouveau but they love to enjoy his parties and they love to enjoy his money. And when uh, the countess comes, because she has that outsider, insider position, Mr. Beaufort is somebody who she does befriend. He has nefarious intentions. He wants to make the countess his lover, much to Newland Archer's chagrin. She knows that she could be his lover, but has made a choice not to debase herself in that way. And Mr. Beaufort, by the way, has another lover. Her name is Fanny. Fanny. Right. And so we have we just have a lot of moving pieces in the ways in which society constrained itself by this idea of what they should and shouldn't do. The thing also that you have to that we have to put emphasis on is that we realize that the love that he has for for Ellen Olinska is intellectual and emotional. Yes. Yes. Say that he is not doing the same thing. He is. He's having an emotional affair. As Larry Ledford's or or Buford. Because, I mean, you know, when you love someone intellectually, even if you haven't had a physical affair with them, I feel like there's, it's, there's, there's an element of, of cheating on your spouse there. Here's where I, I, I oscillated between my levels of of dislike for Newland Archer because like, let's take those three men, Lawrence Lefferts and and Mr. Buford or Beaufort Mm -hmm. and Newland Archer. Mr. Beaufort, in a in a way, or Buford was more preferred for me because he was who he was. He was just like, I'm ostentatious, I'm nouveau riche, I love my wife, I keep her in diamonds and furs, I have my affairs. And I'm doing what I'm doing. And if you don't like it, kick rocks. Yeah. Lawrence Lafferts knew exactly who he was as well, Mm -hmm. but was much more hypocritical about it. Lawrence Lafferts was, I keep my wife ignorant. Mm -hmm. I've married somebody who has totally played into these societal norms and conformities. And I myself am the keeper of Mm -hmm. who should be doing what in society Mm -hmm. so that when... It seems as though my bad deeds will get discovered. I can throw shade on some other person and say this other person is not doing the right thing. And really what it is, is a bait and switch. And then you have Newland Archer, who's a snob and cannot abide Mr. Buford slash Beaufort and the way in which he is so nouveau riche and so in your face. But he also cannot deal with the idea of Lawrence Lafford who he feels is constantly in the midst of throwing somebody else to the dogs in order to save himself. And he can't see what Ellen Olenska can see, which is we are engaged in a deep emotional affair with one another. And she is saying to him, this is as far as I can go, this emotional affair that has no tangible. She does offer to have a one-time, one-night affair. With one night. To leave and go back. She yeah. does. And she would have done it, save for May going and saying, yeah. I am pregnant. Yeah, exactly. So his yeah, wife is very aware. already informed Ellen of a few weeks ahead of time. 
That tells you that May was no longer innocent anymore. And she started figuring out the jig was up. For me, this is where you and I differ. In the beginning, I think that she had ignorance. And so as a result of being ignorant, she had ways in which she can she could act innocent. And the minute she finds out what she finds out, she is no longer kind or has goodwill towards her cousin. She wants her cousin to go back to that man who she knows beats her That's cousin. She wants to keep her marriage. You know, she wants her marriage and she wants to keep it. But the thing that I find appalling about May is if she knows what she knew and comes to the understanding that what was happening between her cousin and her husband was happening for a year, why wasn't her cousin dealing with her, her husband a year and a half ago? Because it could have happened. So she's trying to keep a marriage Based on what? Because a year and a half ago, Newland and Allen. She's trying to keep a marriage on the fact that she can't get a divorce because she don't want her and her family to be out from the community. She has the exact same problem that her cousin is having. Her situation is totally different. No, she's She's not. She's with a man who doesn't love her. It's just the that's not her. That's not her cousin's issue. May my problem with May is that Newland spouse that is unwilling a spouse who is not doing what he really should be doing. But but she doesn't have to bring Olenska into that. She could have controlled no, Archer without all realistic. of that. I think it's realistic that she say that. Oh, I think That's it's realistic, but I don't think that I, I don't. She's like, I, I, I stand here with my husband who doesn't love me, then why can't she go back and get with her husband that she doesn't love? May is like those kingfish who, because she doesn't have to see, loses their sight. May is with a man, one, who she loves. The Countess does not love her husband. May is with a man who, too, does not beat her. The Countess's husband beats her. May is, three, with a man who conforms to social norms. The Countess is not with a man who conforms to any norms because he is a Count. And so she wants to send her cousin back into the belly of the beast. You know what May has? May has a pretty typical marriage, which is one that's kind of boring with a husband who has ideals about an outside life that he is never going to fulfill. That's not what Olenska has. And my problem with May is she chooses to say we have the same situation and the situation is not the same. I know. I understand that. Yeah. But I, I'm telling you that that is normal. That no, that is normal. I, no, I agree with that. But I, what I'm I saying to you is. Because I don't feel like it's exactly the same, but they're equating it as the same because women have no damn choice. That's yes, I understand the equation of the same, but I don't think that that means that May is innocent. I said May was innocent in the beginning of the I school. don't think that. I think May was uh, innocent based on the way that society cultivated innocence. Innocent women in our society dress this way. Innocent women in our society have two-year engagements. Innocent women in our society are not made knowledgeable about things like Faust. She doesn't get to see Faust. It's too yeah. sexualized. So I think that it's a construct of innocence that May is in at the beginning of the novel. Absolutely. Real well, innocence. That's very typical of this time period. It's the 1870s. Yeah, I think every woman in the beginning, every young woman is growing up in a certain sense of innocence. But that's yes, the moment that they get married, where everything opens up for them, and they start to become privy to a lot more than they were when they were young women. I think for me, I have zero tolerance for 
the social con- the socially constructed innocence that may had and then continue to reinforce because her reliance on the patriarchy is so heavy that once she finally discovers what it is else. that she discovers she can do nothing else There's but nothing but else. the way in which she uses society as a tool to crack down on her cousin's more genuine innocence yeah. i was done with may from the beginning middle and end of the book but She's a victim of that society. They all are. They all are. But just because you're a victim does not mean you are not, in addition, a villain. And the villainy that May commits against her own cousin was too much for me. I think it was probably one of the worst people in the book because everyone knew that the husband was a philanderer, a drunk, and... Everybody's motives in this book is muddy. Everybody's motives in this book is muddy. If it's not about the money, it's about the prestige or what it looks like, or there's always something, but not the things that are important, you know, not the real things that are important. So let's think about Ellen, Ellen Olenska, right? So Ellen Olenska marries the wrong man and she flouts tradition at every turn. She married, she married actually what would have been considered the right man. He was foreign, but he was a count. But then she realizes for her, he is the wrong man. He exposed her to all of the things she's interested in, the arts. She had a level of freedom that she would have needed because although she is of New York society, her parents were kind of bohemian. And then when they died, they left her in the care of an aunt who was bohemian. So she wasn't raised in that ignorant innocence that May was raised in. And so for her, to sit down and have good conversation with poor writers is a thing that she would do. And that's also European, right? Um, Very, yeah. Which was interesting to me because I thought to myself, I wondered about this. Do you think that the reason that New York held so fast to their idea of class lines and form is because they weren't really aristocracy. Because there's that line that Archer's mother has, where she's like, if you look at the original families of New York, we're really merchants. And there's only that one family that's really gentry. So if I'm a merchant, I constantly need to distance myself in a way that if I'm a count, I could sit down with a writer. I don't have to distance myself. I am a count. Yeah. I don't have to constantly reinforce the idea that I'm better. I have my title. There's, there's definitely a difference because of that. And I think also because there's this idea around the monarchy. This is the U.S. It's yeah. you know, the 1870s. There's this, because you know the monarchy and all that, it has this whole thing around blood, you know. Yeah. And divine right. In New York people, it's more or less, how did you make your money? So if you have your money because it's been in the family since they hit Plymouth Rock, it's a little different from like, for example, Beaufort, that it was, you know, he hit it big on the stock market or whatever and started making a lot of money. And so he's like one of the rich people. They're, They're thinking of it as another class of people, meaning like not our class, which is just another way for them to uplift themselves. And so as a result, is that why they double down on making sure that that was always known? Because it keeps yeah. up at the top of the class. Right, ranking. right. That's an interesting thing, because now that I'm thinking about that from the perspective of the countess, she spent all that time in Europe. She came with that privilege of, I don't need to constantly reassert my class in order to be of my class, which is a very yeah. European thing, right? I am 
what I am. So that was enough. And so she comes to this society and she lives with this level of freedom that they think of as gauche, but that actually is the height of privilege because she's a countess. But I think there's also, it's mostly also a sense of jealousy. Yes. Because not only that, you know, she's, of course, she's got this, this freedom to live freer than the average New York society, society lady. And then the moment she says, countess doors open, people treat her differently because she does have that title of countess. She doesn't really seem to care about that. And she just wants... She just wants to be loved and taken in. Yes. Nobody is doing that. Nobody is doing that. Speaking of freedom, right? A lot of the ways in which she is constrained fall in line with the gender, which crosses class and to an extent race. A lot of the things that she's been exposed to is not something that I would say you would read is typical of a white upper class woman being exposed to. And so I thought it was interesting that the freedom that she was afforded is a freedom that you typically see afforded to the lower classes, as well as the crucibles that she had to go through. It would not be unusual for me to read during the the late 19th century or the early 20th century, a book about somebody Black being abused physically or a lower class woman being abused, right? If you look at the literature of that time, like in the 1870s, that's not something that you would see. And so I'm like, oh, what's the cost of the freedom? Because the freedom that Ellen Olenska has, and she definitely has it in comparison to her counterparts, Mm. costs her. And it's a cost that's typically a cost incurred by a lower class person. If yeah. you're looking at, at what what was rendered about lower class experiences literarily. Mm. And I was just like, that's an interesting choice on the part of the writer to show somebody of the highest class in the book is dealing with experiences that you would typically see in somebody of a lower class. But the thing that she does benefit from is also a freedom that typically was afforded to a lower class person. If I'm a lower class person in New York, I'm not worried about some of the social constraints that somebody like May Newland's wife is worried about. Definitely not in the same way. You might have no constraints, but not, right, right. not at all what they're concerned about. She's not she's not dealing with the same standards in her own mind. She's like, yeah. I'm doing what I want to do and nobody's going to stop me. But I like how it ends this book because it ends on this tone of 25 years later. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Means. It's the same, but not really. You know, I feel like you could really like I could just see this being modernized in a, you know, in a play form or modernized in, in a oh retelling. God, I could watch a it as a play. retelling would be so cool of this particular book. A retelling that took place today. That yeah. that I think would be a great way to look at the story and put in it some of the themes that are wrecking us today uh, in society. Yes, you know, yes. So what social constraints do we have today, and exactly. where do they lie? And what would a love affair that cannot be look like? In and, society? and what circles yeah. would it just be unacceptable? Which circle would be the one that would be chosen as New York High Society? I think that would be something to really look at. So I think that's all for today. It was great discussing this one with you. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.